get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney. Uh, Justin, it's another week. Glad to be back with you. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Another week, another round of conversation about faith and politics. As usual, I'm looking forward to it, brother. Yeah, it's uh, how did a no and campaign had uh, the the launch, the opening of the Frontline Discipleship Corps. Uh, how, how did that go? Was it a good a good event for you? We got some great feedback, some really encouraging feedback. You know, our speakers from Lisa Fields from Jew Three Project. We had Preston Perry and uh, Jackie Hill Perry, and then Doctor um, Tony Evans did what everyone expected him to do and gave a wonderful sermon that really touched on uh, faith in the socio political arena. And people left, uh, you know, really, really, it seemed like they left inspired and gave us some great feedback. So it was everything that we could expect and more. And we're looking forward to our next stop, which will be in L.A. And as you know, we'll be also be coming to D.C. Uh, in, uh, in due time. Man, that's phenomenal. I hope folks continue to make it out to the Ann Campaign's uh, Frontline Discipleship events. I think that uh, uh, it's wonderful that the Ann Campaign will be brought to uh, a city near many of you. And so it's a great uh, opportunity to engage with the AND campaign. Uh, Justin, we have so much to talk about this week in terms of news and current events. Uh, I think there's no other way that we could open up, though, on the show than talking about the passing of Billy Graham. Uh, Billy Graham uh, passed uh, last week at 99 years old. Uh, as the Christianity Today, uh, op-ed, but our obituary and many others have said he was perhaps the most significant religious figure of the 20th century, and he played a significant role, uh, not just in politicians' uh, lives and sort of global leaders, but uh, in average folks who came to Jesus or learned more about Jesus because of his ministry. He preached to uh, nearly uh, to, he preached in person to more than a hundred million people, to millions more via television, satellite, and film. And uh, according to this uh, Christianity Today obituary by Marshall Shelley, nearly three million uh, have responded to his invitation to quote accept Jesus into your heart at the end of his sermon. And so, uh, uh, Justin, it, this is uh, uh, th this is a, a pretty significant event in. Uh, the modern history of the church uh, in uh, I think we're going to see more news this week. There are many ceremonies that are going to be held memorial services. I was in St. Louis and uh, there was uh, there were billboards in St. Louis honoring Billy Graham. So I think uh, he's going to lie in state this week in con uh, at, at the Capitol. Uh, how are you? Sort of reflecting on and processing the the really the end of an era as as Billy Graham uh, has has moved on and passed. 
Yeah, well, this is a guy they called America's pastor, uh, really, and really was the standard bearer for uh, evangelical Christianity. Uh, and so I've tried to take this time to really reflect on his contribution, uh, what he meant to evangelicalism, but not only that, uh, what he meant to Christianity in general. Um, so much that, that he had done, uh, as you know, he, he's one, uh, he founded Christianity Today, spearheaded the Luzanne, uh, movement, uh, Luzanne covenant, things of that nature. I mean, his contribution was huge. And, and some would say that there's probably no one else. I think, uh, Melanie, uh, McAllister said no one else did as much to turn, uh, evangelicalism into a, an international movement than, uh, Billy Graham did. So it's, it's hard to deny his contribution. He certainly lived a full life, uh, and, and affected many things. I, I think in these conversations, it's always important to talk about the contributions of someone of this stature, but also to be honest about where they may, you know, may have fallen short. I hope the church takes this as a time where we can say, what can we learn from what he did? Um, where, where have we built on that legacy and where have we kind of let it slip, uh, you know, between our fingers. And if the church does it, I think we'll be better off. Uh, you know, this is someone who, you know, sat down with Martin Luther King to discuss race, had King join him in 1957 at one of his revivals at Madison Square Garden. All huge things, even someone who posted bail for Dr. King. So these are huge contributions. And you also saw people talking about some of the things that he could have done better, right? Uh, there's, there's talk about, you know, he didn't necessarily... Uh, I guess he refused to, to march in the uh, March on Washington, kind of questioned King's dream in the beloved community. He was human. Uh, let's look at all of the, all, all of what he did and some of the things he could have done better. I've seen most people do a pretty good job of that. Some, you know, some people kind of ro- want to completely romanticize it or 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 just focus on the negative. Uh, I would say that this is someone who left uh, Christianity probably in a better place than it was before. Something else that really stuck out to me uh, also, Brother Weir, was just that he received a lot of criticism from fundamentalists for even reaching out to, you know, more modernist denominations. And because of him reaching out and trying to make that connection, he actually, to some extent, was able to reconcile evangelicalism with social justice. Now, if I look back on that, I would say there's more building to do. And I think. Uh, evangelicals would be uh, in a good place to try to build on that even more and make that connection. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's, I think that's key. His, uh, his work with uh, the, the fact that he was willing to appear and work with liberal denominations, work with, uh, work with Catholics, I think sent uh, an important message that of course, wasn't, re- wasn't received by, you know, his, his, you know, core base, if you want to call it that. Uh, uh, b- but <laughs> you're, you're, you're never going to bring everyone along. Uh, and, and, you know, people are going to take and choose what they, what they want from, uh, uh, fr- from what you're doing. But, uh, the, I, I do think it's not quantifiable the extent to which, uh, he, he played a role in Catholic, uh, Protestant relations, uh, as you said, ac- actually creating an environment where, uh, you know, as, and we talk about this pretty often, you know, as siloed as the church is now, it's interesting to think about how much more siloed we'd be if it wasn't for uh, someone like Billy Graham. And so uh, I've learned a lot from the reflections. I agree with you. I think most of, uh, most of, uh, the, the reflections and commentary and critique have been 
uh, have been uh, even-handed. Uh, I think it's also important, you know, evangelicals can sometimes uh, get to uh, uh, a woe is me sort of uh, victim <laughs> victimization mentality where, you know, anytime anybody in the media says anything negative, you know, it's, it's, Oh, look at them beating up us, uh, beating up on us again. And, you know, I just remind folks, uh, uh, Billy Graham is not the first person uh, to have passed, to have had his, <laughs> to have critiques be made. Uh, the, the LDS church recently had their, their leader pass and there was a, a pretty, uh, a talked about uh, ob uh, obituary, uh, in the New York Times that, uh, some thought unfairly critiqued him. Uh, you could go down a list, liberal, conservative, religious, non-religious. And this is just, this is the media environment we're in where people are problematizing a, a lot of things and a, and a lot of good can come from that. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, a week of uh, more reflections on Billy Graham's life. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you just in the Billy Graham uh, uh, Association has been airing They've been doing, uh, they've been streaming live basically all of Billy Graham's uh, big uh, arena events, his crusades. Mm -hmm. And I've probably watched more Billy Graham in the last, you know, week than I've than I've seen in the last, you know, five years. Uh, I need to check uh, that out, man. Yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been fun, uh, fun to see. And, uh, you know, even just the, the, there was just no one like him to think that there was a, you know, we're, we're pretty young guys. It's it's pretty uh, incredible to think that there was a time when you know an evangelist coming to town, whether it was uh, in St. Louis or whether it was in London or you know anywhere around the world. It's amazing to think that there was a time when an evangelist coming to town was 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 the event, uh, and that's that's pretty incredible. Yeah, we might need to bring that back, bring that back into play. I, something else that's interesting that I think we should touch on is just his relationship with presidents. Uh, he was yeah. able to get some good work done in working with presidents and advising presidents. And then there's the other side that some would say he was a little too comfy with presidents. We saw that. Uh, well, we didn't see it, but we know that that kind of uh, hurt him, especially when it came to President Nixon and when all the Watergate stuff went down. Apparently, Nixon had been telling him, look, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, and come to find out he wasn't innocent. And that, uh, to some extent, you know, hurt Billy Graham's reputation a little bit. And my understanding is after that happened, he actually advised some of the folks who were starting the religious rights stuff not to go down that route. And apparently, uh, many of them did not listen. And we kind of yeah. know the story from there. Yeah, and it's important, you know, uh, uh, on those tapes with Nixon, I think one thing that's you know, been important that it's been discussed is, you know, Billy Graham was reported uh, saying some some pretty unquestionably anti-Semitic uh, uh, statements. And, you know, I, I think it's important to, to note those. I also think, you know, it's, it, it's, I'm not remembering who, who pointed this out. And I think multiple, multiple people have, but, um, uh, you know, Billy, Billy Graham was very publicly, regretful of uh those comments he was publicly regretful of um of his uh political involvement especially with nixon over and over again he talks about what a mistake that was and and i do think that that's something important for uh leaders at any level to acknowledge that one of the most like billy graham was at such a level where uh he could have decided that he 
he was above accountability that he doesn't have to answer to any anything he could have you know had <laughs> He, he could have just uh, said he wasn't going to take questions on something. You know, people find all kinds of ways, especially before the social media age of uh, just ducking and dodging things. And, uh, you know, I, there are numerous uh, sort of uh, written documents and yeah, Billy Graham's uh, uh, public statements that acknowledge mistakes that he made, I think, in the hopes that generations have followed. Like you said, he advised the religious right based on his mistakes and whether they took it or not, uh, th there's something valuable there about uh, not just learning from your mistakes, but uh, openly discussing them for the benefit of, of others. Um, and, you know, I, Jonathan Merritt wrote a pretty, pretty good op-ed in the New York Times about what we could learn from Billy Graham's political involvement that I'd encourage folks to read. So, yeah. And I, I, lastly, I would just say, as we critique uh, this man, uh, keep in mind that uh, it can be very hard to go against the spirit of the day. Um, and so I think that can temper some of our critique and just look at yourself. Uh, are you going against the spirit of the day in every way that you could or should? It's not easy to do. And we all have blind spots. So uh, that's something always to keep in mind as we make these important critiques. Yeah. So we're going to take a break. Uh, folks, I hope you'll listen through this episode. We have an important conversation. We're going to continue the conversation on uh, on uh, gun control. We're going to discuss the CNN town hall. Uh, we're going to talk about the NCAA scandal. Uh, and then I learned probably the most fascinating thing I've ever learned about a former <laughs> U.S. president that I'm going to share at the end of the episode. And so uh, hang on, hold on, uh, listen on. We have a lot to discuss, a lot of conversation to have. And then I, I have a little historical tidbit that I think you'll find interesting. We'll be back after the break. This episode of Church Politics is brought to you by Eastlick Coffee, a coffee roasting company serving specialty coffees that are unique yet familiar, complex and comforting featuring diverse origins that are delicious and approachable. Use the code FORTH, that's F-O-R-T-H, to get 40% off your first bag of coffee by visiting eastlitcoffee.com. We're back at the Church Politics Podcast. We had a, um, a lot of uh, news last week, obviously, about the passing of Billy Graham uh, in politics and in for the national conversation, uh, we continued to see uh, a, a lot about gun control. Uh, we saw uh, a, a student uh, uprising, uh, not just in Florida, uh, but really across the country. Actually, my I saw a news report my my home high school in in uh, Kenmore, <laughs> New York, uh, Kenmore East High School uh, had students walking out and. Again, we're seeing that across the country. Uh, uh, Justin, did you catch uh, CNN's town hall this past week? CNN held a held a town hall uh, with uh, uh, Senator Rubio and Senator Nelson, and then Dana Loesch from the NRA, and they were receiving questions from students. Uh, were, were you able to catch that? I did catch that. Uh, I, I caught a very good portion of it. Uh, Jake Tapper was the moderator. And let me just say this. I think, in my opinion, Jake Tapper is uh, one of the best in the business. 
Uh, I think he goes out of his way to be a true journalist, to ask the right questions and be as balanced as possible. So I do want to point that out. I think he did as as well as could be expected in that type of very emotional conversation with thousands. Look like there, you know, look like there was thousands of people there. Um, it did get a little out of control at some point, just because I think people were emotional and uh, you kind of shouting people down, things of that nature. But in general, I'm glad CNN uh, uh, did it. I think they should do that more often on real issues and force politicians to come and answer the tough questions of the people. So I'm glad that those uh, that Senator Nelson, Senator Marco Rubio were there. Uh, I know everyone who saw kind of the the highlights, so to speak, saw that Rubio got hit with some really tough questions, as he should. One of the questions was, will he take money from the NRA after all this happened? He would not commit to doing that. His the point that he made, which I thought he made fairly well, was just that, look. They have to buy into what I, you know, to what I do. If they if they give me money, it's because they're buying into what I'm doing, not me buying to what they're doing. And he pointed out a few areas where he disagreed with them. I don't think he answered all the questions all that well, but given the circumstances, uh, I th- thought he did okay. Senator Nelson as well. Um, someone else who was there was the uh, Broward County Sheriff Scott Israel. I didn't think he did as well. I, I was a little bit surprised at the posture that he took. I don't know if you saw that part, but he yeah. he was really playing to the crowd to the crowd a little yes. bit more than I would have expected. Usually, you know, a sheriff you come in there very sober, giving the facts, letting people know what the investigation's about, not really giving so much of your opinion on everything. And I, I, it was almost as if he was about he felt like he had an opportunity to run for office or something because he was really opinionated and 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 provocative. Yeah, and it it was odd because he didn't. I mean, I got the temptation because because of the way the the the, the crowd was reacting and, and maybe playing to that. But I think it um, he, he didn't he didn't need to do that. <laughs> the crowd was on his side. It almost to to me watching uh, it almost was playing into. So he was on with Dana, uh, the NRA spokesperson, who kept on. It, it looked like he was trying to deflect from her criticisms, how, whatever the motivations of, of those were. And uh, th- th- there was a great deal of deflection involved in, in, in her approach of, you know, raising the failures of the FBI and local police of, of, uh, of uh, picking up on, on the signs. And so, yeah, I, I thought, I, I thought it was, uh, I, I thought it was odd. And I, I'll tell you, like, there were just some surreal, there were some surreal moments there are some surreal moments just just in the whole debate, Justin. I mean, first of all, the most surreal thing is that we have children being shot in school. And so, you, you know, it's people have been talking about the way these students are engaging. And, of course, you know, uh, I think there are reasonable things to say about uh uh civil discourse and all of that i'd also want to note that uh it's really funny to see all these adults talking about uh, uh young teenagers not uh, engaging in civil discourse with the utmost you know propriety i i, I want to be clear i'm not sure the adults have given them an example to follow That's right. uh, so That's right. so you know it, it's really stunning to me uh, if we're going to hold everyone to the same standard, that's one thing. It's another thing to see all these adults telling these telling these students that uh, 
wow, you really need to be more civil. What uh, we really have some traditions and procedures to uphold. Uh, like, have y'all been watching the way adults have been acting in politics over the last uh, couple of years, uh, especially, but really, you know, uh, the the last half of the century. And so, you know, I think that's that's uh, uh, that that's that's critical. Uh, but but the whole thing is just. The whole thing is just surreal. I think you're right. I think it was a wonderful thing that Senator Rubio was 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 there. I don't want to call it like uh, heroism, but I think people were right to say other politicians would not have shown up. And in fact, Governor Scott, uh, the Republican governor of the state, was invited and didn't come. And so the fact that Senator Rubio was there, knew what the uh, I think he had, probably had a pretty good idea of what uh, the environment was going to be like. Um, in that way, we need more conversations like what we saw at the CNN town hall. Uh, but I'm not sure there was too much listening going on. Uh, Damon Linker uh, wrote about this uh, in a column on uh, February 21st at The Week uh, called America's Addiction to the Politics of Anger. Uh, Justin, I know you, you read this piece, uh, thought it was valuable. Uh, what what were your main takeaways from from this op-ed from from Damon? Yeah, so just for a little bit of background, and we've talked about Linker before. He's one of my favorite progressive writers. This particular article uh, was based on the angry reaction that some people on the left had to an article that was written by David Brooks, who's with the New York Times. And in the original Brooks article, Brooks was basically suggesting that liberals might want to stop demonizing their opposition in the gun debate if they want to make progress on the matter, uh, which seems fairly common sense to me. You know, you don't turn away the people you need to make the change because it's very clear that the left doesn't have the numbers to make that change by themselves. And so you might want to talk to people in a way uh, that doesn't completely, you know, have them stop listening to you. Um, and so that, that doesn't mean there can't be serious criticism. I think there should be serious criticism of the right when it comes to this gun debate. That's not the point. But name calling, you know, calling folks murderers and all that stuff just just really isn't helpful. So once David Brooks suggested that uh, some on the left really were outraged by David Brooks statement, comparing it to playing nice with racists and segregationists. And, you know, nobody thinks that you should play nice with those kind of people. And I'll just say this, too. I mean, the left, to some extent, is taking that comparison and using it a little bit too much. Uh, you can't let's not compare everything that you don't like to a racist and a segregationist just because you don't want to have a conversation <laughs> as, as much as possible. There should be conversations. And when I look at Dr. King, I look at others. They had serious conversations with racists and segregationists, but there was still a level of, of civility. There was a level of respect, even when they weren't getting the respect back themselves. So I don't I'm not sure that that justifies sitting around and, and just name calling and not wanting to have a real conversation with people. I, I think that's a um, misplaced comparison sometimes. Um, and, and, and to some extent, we all get it. It's human nature to be very clear and prophetic on the unreasonableness of other people, of your opponent, and be completely yeah, right. blind to, to to your own unreasonableness. You, you can take the Gosnell example, right? When, when Kermit Gosnell, the doctor, the abortionist yeah. got caught, no one on the left wanted to talk about it. No one on the left wanted to say this was a problem. And even when when you, there were questions about uh, transporting body parts and there was video and all that stuff, I made the statement that day that 
the to the left saying, look, if you want to know how people on the right can just ignore something and act like it didn't happen, that really outrages you. Remember today, because right. everywhere I look on the left, nobody is saying anything. So you can take Gosnell, you can take the, uh, you know, the movement of body parts all over the nation in the cell of body parts. The left said nothing. So if you if you want to know what the right uh, feels like when you're talking about guns, then you may want to recall what you felt like at that moment when the right when the left decided to say nothing about some of those issues. It, now, something interesting is, you know, President Trump, and again, I don't think we need to restate, but we will. Uh, there's there's good reason not to uh, think that uh, everything that President Trump has said is uh, set in stone. But over the last uh, week, uh, President Trump has put uh, some policies that Democrats have been calling for on the table. Uh, including regulations around bump stocks, around age limits, uh, and uh, around uh, uh, mental health, and and uh, uh, making sort of the background checks more more robust. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. I saw a former Obama uh, colleague that I, I won't name on on the on the show uh, just posted something on social media saying, it, you know. If Democrats don't take uh, don't take what Republicans are being forced to give now uh, in as, as part of some kind of political power play, this former Obama staffer said, uh, I, "I'm no longer going to be a Democrat." He said, "I'm I'm I'm going to leave the party." Uh, and so, you know, we're going to see this unfold. You have these students who are uh, uh, really making a uh, making a case here really getting involved you have people who are being encouraged to uh call their members of congress and and uh and protest and if democrats think that they could uh, channel that energy just for their political benefit and uh decide that making limited progress certainly uh, unsatisfactory from a democratic perspective unsatisfactory progress but if they say no to what trump has put on the table uh not only could that backfire politically um but it's a loss it's a loss for the country if we could get something done on bump stocks we we better get it done <laughs> exactly and we've both said uh, we think that the right is being unreasonable on these issues so we're not trying to put the whole all the pressure right. on democrats but now that things are changing now that there is some leverage there you need to take it instead of being purely political. And I think that's what we're saying. Uh, get out of the anger. Get out of the mad politics where we can just shout at each other and see that there's an opportunity here. And, it, and if uh, that opportunity isn't used, then I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think that that would be a huge mistake and it will backfire uh, as it should. But both sides need to have a conversation about this. And remember, there's something that you may not prioritize or something that you, you may go against that, that outrages someone else. I think you would want them to talk to you about it, have a real conversation. And so do that with others, even when it's hard. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be uh, interesting uh, and, and to see this debate unfold, to see uh, if Congress is able to act. The politics is very complicated. There are so many interests. Uh, it is an inherently, uh, you know, a, a, 
in some ways it is a life and death debate. I mean, we talk a lot on this show about uh, putting politics in proper perspective. And I think even when it comes to uh, when it comes to this d- debate, some of the rhetoric is overheated. But it's it's more reasonable to say that this is a life or death debate on this issue than a lot of other debates that are that are treated in that way. Uh, and so uh, that's right. But know, I, I think are that, gonna though, be, yeah, I'm sorry. I think in that we can still say that, yes, there should be restrictions and that is part of the problem. But we can may also want to admit that that may not be the only part of the problem. And I think sometimes people have a problem with admitting that as well. Well, yeah, I mean, right, there's so much, so much misdirection, so much, I mean, I think we've talked about this before, you know, the the, the thoughts and prayers stuff, look, if, if the only intention with that was to critique inaction, then you, then you just critique inaction, uh, the, 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 the implication of thoughts and prayers is, it's nothing but a, a anti-religious dog whistle, you know. Like, like if if you just wanted to critique in action, you'd say, "Why aren't people acting?" But when, but uh, there's a uh, a sub political intention by saying uh, they're not acting because they're too busy with their thoughts and their prayers, with their talking to the spaghetti monster in the sky. That, 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 like, we can't be naive about this stuff. And then I'd also say. You know, there's misdirection involved in there. There is some misdirection involved with the uh, some of the. You know, uh, will you stop receiving money from NRA? I think Marco Rubio was right to say, uh, "Look, look, I have a I have a position on the Second Amendment that is about. It's such a. Uh, it's politically useful because if you could." pressure Marco Rubio or Republicans to deny money, then you're then you're hurting their campaign effort. And it's another line of attack. But when it comes to the policy position, let's just talk. Marco Rubio's wrong on guns. <laughs> like, why isn't that sufficient? <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. That's a, that's what it should go to. And, and people just realize the misdirection doesn't help. It gets us away from the, the true issue. We need to take action on this because people are dying. We can do better while respecting the Second Amendment. Let's get, let's talk and get it done. That's it. Yeah. Well, folks, I hope you'll check out Damon Linker's uh, uh, column. You may uh, uh, disagree with him, you may agree with him, uh, but it's 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 worth a read as Damon Linker usually is. Uh, we'll come back talk about the NCAA controversy after the break. This is the Church Politics Pod. We're back at the Church Politics Podcast. And last Friday, Yahoo Sports reported that uh, uh, as many as 25 current and former uh, players at more than 20 Division I programs, and we're talking about top programs, we're talking about top players, number one draft picks, uh, etc., cetera, uh, may have received uh, benefits, uh, financial benefits, from uh, a sort of rogue sports agent uh, that ranged from free meals to five and six figure payments. Uh, this is something that's going to NCAA has been having some problems <laughs> uh, over the last uh, over the last several years. This is going to uh, 
Uh, This is going to be a major conversation, especially with March Madness coming up. And it'll be interesting to see how it affects the NBA as well. Uh, Justin, this obviously, you you know, there's the controversy and then where many people I think are rightfully taking, you know, the conversation about the controversy is, you know, it also highlights the fact that these, uh, you know, valuable uh, uh, money producing players uh, have to receive illegal benefits because they aren't receiving uh, uh, legal benefits as far as any type of salary or pay for their performance goes. And so uh, I I want, uh, what do you think about the controversy? And then do you think, do you think that's right to take this conversation about, you know, illegal behavior into a broader conversation about, uh, about college sports and, and, and these players getting paid? Well, I think you're right. The, the money, and the distribution of it or lack thereof is at the heart of this conversation. And it's, it's a, it's a complex issue. I don't know that there's an easy answer to it. Um, and you know, for me, uh, as a former NCAA D1 athlete, uh, actually someone who was part of the NCAA student athlete leadership, I went to those leadership conferences, sat on the title, title nine committee for, uh, for Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt University. You know, obviously, this is an issue that hits home uh, because I've seen these issues. I've seen stu- uh, student athletes who need money and who don't, you know, don't get, have what they need because they can't make any money. Uh, and I realize the complexities of this issue um, because and it starts even before they get to the NCAA. Nowadays, it starts at the AAU level. And so you have these huge endorsements. You have these companies giving money to coaches and all these runners. And it's right. still the kids sitting in there in the middle and can have nothing who, you know, might have parents who, who are out of work or, or all that stuff. We have to find a way um, to to include these these young people in the in all the money that's going on around here. I mean, there just has to be a way and it's tough, but there, it, it just has to happen because you have all these adults who are acting poorly and you create a situation where you're really tempting these student athletes to do something that that, you know, that, that is going against the rules. Uh, but we have to be very conscious of the situations and environment that we're putting these young people into. So one thing I'll say about this investigation, uh, which like you said, includes Duke, Kentucky, Michigan state, North Carolina, Texas, and so on is I hope the FBI's investigation doesn't make the primary aim, the students. Right. Um, I think there are a lot of agents AAU affiliated people, whether, you know, runners, all these other, these, some of these coaches that need to be the aim of this investigation. Uh, that's the first thing I would say, because the student there, these are young people, 17, 18 year olds, 19 year olds who are in, in any other environment, any other market worth a lot of money <laughs> and can make yeah. a lot of money for what they do, who are being denied that whose parents have of some some of them parent their parents have financial issues. I'm never going to say it's okay to violate the rule. Uh right. so so I want to be clear on that. I'm not saying any violation is okay and I would never, you know, allow my sons or any mentee that I had um I would never tell them that that would be okay or or allow it. But I do realize the situation some of these folks are in and we make it a lot harder when we don't think through the issue. Or, or if it's going to be amateur, make it amateur. But there's just too much money going around, and we have to find a better way. 
I don't necessarily have that answer. As I said, I've been on some of the committees where that conversation has come up. I've, I've thought through it and, and I know the complexities, but we really need to sit down and, and um, come to some type of solution because it's the way it is, is, is it's only going to get worse now and we got to figure it out. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you can't, I, I think it's like a tough argument either way. If you want to blame the, the students for uh, accepting this money, uh, while also saying that oh these are just students they they won't know they won't know what to do with the money in other words you you can't you can't take away from them uh sort of the autonomy and the uh the ability to uh make make decisions and in in one area and then put the full burden on them in another you know that that right. that strikes me as kind of talking out of right. both sides of your mouth I, I i agree with you i think it's a I think it's a difficult situation, and if you know if, if your if your folks are back home and have an eviction notice, or you have little siblings who aren't uh, you know going to be able to get uh, you know scholarships to attend college and don't have the money to go to school, it's uh, it's it's a lot of burden on, on these kids who you know are always one injury away from having their, their futures you know uh, hampered. Uh, it, it's it's just a lot of weight. So I agree. Th there are so many uh, problems and hurdles uh, involved with paying co college uh, athletes. You know how how do you figure out uh, the the difference, if any, between how uh, uh, field hockey and swimmers and uh, you know whatever are getting paid as opposed to exactly. basketball and football? Uh, how do you decide between uh, uh, do, does everyone get paid the same in division one or uh, do bigger colleges? Are they able to pay more? I mean, there's just so many things to figure out, but we got to figure it out. I mean, what, like if, 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 the, if, if the, if the agents in the story, if, if this, if the students were s something else, if they were more powerful, this would be figured out. The reason why it's not getting figured out now is because the system is working for all those who have, the real decision-making authority. They're making money. They're able to make deals. They're able to build careers off these kids' backs. Uh, and so, what we, we need to uh, we we need to figure out what's uh, what's fair and what's what's just and what will maintain the integrity of of the sport, but also the the integrity of of these kids' uh, lives and their ability to thrive uh, after college sports. Yeah, because a lot of these kids aren't going to go to the NBA. They're not necessarily right. going to play professionally. So if they're at a moment where they're worth their career is worth one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or whatever it may be, that may be the most you know they could make in within a four year period or something like that. We have to take those things into consideration. But as you pointed out, it gets very complicated because you do have Title Nine, and the and the fact of the matter is the players that are actually worth a lot of money. It's only a few of them, even whether it's football or basketball. It's not like there's you know, 2000 kids who all contribute in the same way to, you know, to the market. Right. Right. Um, but then at the same time, once you start paying them with title nine, you can't necessarily pay the, the, the male players more than the female players and things of that, you know, things, things like that do come into play and, and you really have to figure it out, but it's worth with all the money they have. I'm sure they could do a very good study and, and, and get it figured out. And that's what needs to happen. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, 
uh, I have a quick story I want to relate. Something I just learned last week. I uh, I mentioned it on social media, uh, but y'all are gonna hear it first. Uh, I found out the most fascinating thing about really uh, a former U.S. president that I'm gonna share with y'all after the break. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back at the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, and, and Justin, I appreciate uh, you uh, humoring me here. Uh, but uh, as as I discussed with you uh, off air, uh, I've learned the most fascinating thing about a former U.S. president uh, and the way that sort of uh, history has has worked. Uh, and I thought uh, thought our listeners would enjoy hearing about that do, do you mind if i share the story justin now go for it, it, it yeah, i think you'll enjoy it let's do it so uh let me take you in 1957 uh betty mooney was a longtime staffer and co-worker with frank laubach frank laubach is uh was a christian mystic most well known for each one, teach one, which is a ministry, a literacy uh, training ministry that helped millions around the globe uh, learn how to read. Uh, I had heard about Frank Laubach first, I think, in a significant way uh, through a Dallas Willard's book. So Dallas Willard talks about Frank Laubach uh, uh, as Frank Laubach took on a challenge at one point to try to pray every minute uh, of every day. Uh, and uh, Dallas talks about this in Divine Conspiracy and I think Spirit of the Disciplines. But Frank Laubach, uh, after that, I looked into him and and uh, a lot of people know Frank Laubach. He's a, he, he, he was a, a global figure and well-known in, in uh, Christian and evangelical circles. Uh, uh, Frank had a woman, Betty Mooney, who was working for him, and she, she would work with him across Africa. And uh, in, in 1957, uh, uh, Betty Mooney uh, ran, uh, was in Nairobi and uh, was, was working there with the literacy program. She came across uh, a young uh, intellectual African that was supremely impressive, uh, and she ended up hiring uh, him as a as a secretary who uh, worked with her and worked with the ministry. Uh, Betty wrote to Frank Laubach about uh, this young man and uh, told Frank that uh, they had to meet. And so Frank Laubach came, met th this, this young man, and they ended up deciding uh, that the young man wanted to come to America uh, for his studies. And uh, each one, each one decided uh, uh, and, and Frank Laubach decided uh, that they would pay for his travel and for his education, uh, and so they they funded this this uh, young man to uh, come to the states. Uh, this young man, there's a record of a letter from uh, this young man to uh, to Frank Laubach, uh, thanking him for fu funding his education, uh, funding his travel. If you haven't guessed at this point. The, the the young intellectual uh, that was involved with Frank Laubach's ministry 
was Barack Obama Sr. <laughs> and so uh, there, there is good reason to think that if it wasn't for the Christian ministry of each one teach one, that Barack Obama Sr. would have uh, not had the opportunity to come to Honolulu, not had the opportunity that, to meet Barack Obama's uh, mother, uh, and that Barack Obama uh, would have never been, uh, President Barack Obama would have never been uh, been born. And so it's, it, uh, Justin, I, I was, this is all from, in the opening 50 pages of David Garrow's uh, uh, biography of President Obama, Rising Star, which uh, which has some uh, is extremely thorough. Uh, got some uh, some negative and some positive critiques when it came out, but I am it's soaked with religion uh, in the first quarter of the book because of the president's time as a community organizer. But I was most surprised to hear this. This tidbit of history that uh, you, you know you you can have a uh, evangelicals were more involved in bringing Barack Obama to the White House than maybe they they even thought or ah. suspected. So, well done. So well it's, done. Uh, it's an amazing story. Yeah, well played. I, I would not have guessed that though. That that was a def- certainly an interesting fact. Yeah. So uh, so so that's that's a uh, that's like a trivia tidbit for the day although i'd be careful where <laughs> some of y'all bring it up <laughs> but uh justin do you have any uh any any closing thoughts for the week i'm gonna be uh, at gardner webb university in boiling springs um you, you know ag- actually as i think about it now uh that this uh i'm speaking there tuesday morning this this probably won't air by then uh but i'm gonna be at wesleyan university on Thursday night for a conversation with the president uh, of the university. And I'm really looking forward to that. So if you're in, uh, in Connecticut or in the area, would love to see you out at Wesleyan university. Uh, uh, Justin, do you have any, any, anything to uh, any closing thoughts, anything's coming up this week? Yeah. It's something my pastor said to me, which I thought was interesting and I'll, I'll say it really quick. Uh, he may have gotten it from somewhere else. So I'm not sure where he got it, but he said, we often identify ourselves with the heroes in the Bible or when somebody does something that, you know, really glorifies God. Rarely do we identify with the person who does something wrong and gets everything wrong. And we may benefit more from actually identifying with those people who need to be corrected and do things differently rather than putting ourselves in the shoes of the hero, because we may be someone or part of someone's Goliath. So just something to think about. Uh, we will see you next week. See ya. Thanks for listening. I'm grooving for the activists and graduates. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.